0: Our New Testament readings come from Luke's Gospel, the 11th chapter, as well as Matthew's Gospel in the 6th chapter. In both places, of course, uh, the Lord Jesus gives this instruction on prayer that we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. So let's read first of all in Luke chapter 11, and let me just call your attention especially to verses 5 through 8, which will kind of be the central text for our meditation this morning. Let's hear God's word. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, verse 5 Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me. And I do not, I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And then from Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a few weeks ago, um, my youngest son Cliff uh, celebrated his 10th birthday. And as you know, birthdays, like all celebrations, are pretty complicated during COVID tide, right? Um, I've learned after three years here that traditionally kids in primary school, I don't know how far this reaches into secondary school, but at least in premar uh, the birthday kid is supposed to bring this traditional treat. I'm looking at my Swiss friends to make sure that I'm not crazy about this. Okay. Um, and <laughs> the way it works is you get uh, a little b- these little bread loaves, right? Vaguely, and you buy these special chocolates, long sticks, and you kind of like imitate uh, shogi vaguely with it. You stick the long chocolate stick into the bread loaf. Voila! There's your birthday treat. And the birthday boy or girl is supposed to bring those in, and that's the snack. So. On Cliff's birthday, he wasn't totally sure if like they were allowed to have snacks at all in the school because this has been kind of up in the air. Um, But he felt the the cultural pressure to show up with the treat, but he didn't know if he was supposed to. So on his birthday, he said he was a little preoccupied. Happy birthday, Cliff. You know, you're 10. How do you feel? Papa? You got to help me. What Cliff? I'm going to go to school and I want you to go to the Negro, and I want you to buy the little vaguely, and I want you to get the little chocolate things, and then you need to come to my school, and at snack time, I need to have those so I can share them with my friends. And, you know, this wasn't how I planned to use my morning, but this was my son's 10th birthday. So what am I gonna say to him? No, you're on your own, buddy. You know, no, of course not. I'll, I'll buy your weird. <laughs> Swiss birthday (laughs) snack so you can share it with your friends. It's his birthday, so I said, absolutely, I'll do it. Uh, This is my son, after all, and I could feel his need to fulfill this expectation. We'll come back to that in a moment, but. uh, When I came to IPC, I kind of made the decision that after Easter, we would cycle through these three primary foundational texts of the Christian life. So that we don't lose hold of them and those three texts are the Apostles Creed the foundations of our faith the Ten Commandments uh, The call of God to imitate his son in those ways and then the Lord's Prayer The call of Jesus to pray like him And so now we're here in this third year after Easter and we're going to study together the Lord's Prayer And we're going to call this series The Rabbis Wrote R-O-T-E The Rabbis Wrote Rabbi of course means teacher, this is what people called Jesus. Um, Rabbis have disciples or followers. And one thing that rabbis taught their disciples was a distinct method of prayer. So it's normal that these disciples came to Jesus and said, Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. After all, John the Baptist taught his disciples and other rabbis have done the same thing. How do you want us to pray? And this comes on the heels of the disciples listening to Jesus pray to his heavenly father. I don't know if he was doing it on purpose to show them what it was like, or if they just kind of snuck up on him and overheard him. But one of them said, Lord, teach us to pray. Was there something in the way Jesus was praying that made the disciple feel like I'm missing something in my prayers? Lord, teach us to pray. We don't know what it was exactly, but here in Luke 11, also in Matthew 6, we learn what makes Jesus so unique. What makes following Jesus, among all the rabbis, being his disciple, so unique. The rabbis wrote. What do I mean by rote? Usually when you think of learning something by rote, it kind of has like a negative implication, doesn't it? At least it does to me, right? You think of memorization and recitation, right? Like you cram the information in and then the test comes and you spit it back out. Um, For some people, this is exactly the problem with religion. Maybe even especially formal liturgical uh, religion. Rote memorization and recitation, it seems to make our prayers, our songs, those kinds of things, seem inauthentic. But there's actually another way of looking at this word rote. When something becomes rote, that could be a negative thing. You could be walking through the motions. But when something is rote, then it has not only been learned and stored in the head, right? What do we say when, when, when Harry memorizes a piece of music? and then gets up and plays the saxophone, but without the music stand and the notation in front of him. We would say he has learned the piece by heart. He's learned it by heart. And Once you've learned something by heart, your heart is your largest muscle, remember? Now it's a part of you, right? It's embedded now in your muscle memory, coming from here and then throughout the rest of your body. And your whole being. Jesus teaches his disciples a prayer, yes, to memorize and to say. But while he's doing that, he's teaching them to hide some incredible life changing realities in their hearts so that they become part of the muscle memory of his disciples. We need to learn the Lord's Prayer, the rabbis wrote, and we need to learn it by heart. By heart. What is it about Jesus' prayer and about the way that he prays that we need to get into our hearts and into our muscle memory? Well, right after Jesus gives the words of his prayer in Luke chapter 11, he teaches us the spirit in which to pray it. And in order to teach us this, he tells us a story, a famous parable. He says, There's a traveler. This traveler has arrived at midnight and at the home of a friend or a relative. Problem is that when the traveler arrives, the host knows that now he's got one job, right? And that is to show hospitality. And at minimum, this means give the guy some calories in the form of bread. You've got to have this at least. So my mother is a hospitality queen, right? Um, Usually when we come to Ohio to visit, it happens that we arrive late at night, and then one of two things happens. Uh, sometimes my mom and dad are waiting up for us to arrive. The older they get, though, eh, it's less likely. Sometimes they're the Netflix is running uh, episode after episode, but they're asleep on the couch. Uh, but sometimes they're they're in bed. But either way, if they're awake after the grandkids are hugged, the first thing my mom wants to know, of course, is, can I make you a sandwich? We have some leftover lasagna from dinner. What can I get you? You need calories, right? There's, a, there's an explanation for my, my adult physique, and it's in part my mom's <laughs> desire to put calories inside us kids. But even if they've gone to bed, there's a note and food spread out on the counter in the kitchen. Help yourselves, eat as much as you want, right? I think that Uh, it would never occur to my mom to just go to bed without making sure that her visitors had the calories. She must be part Hebrew, I guess, because she feels the same cultural necessity as this man in Jesus's story does to show hospitality to the weary traveler in the middle of the night. But in this story of Jesus's, the host has run out of bread and that puts him in this awful position. He has to make a terrible choice, right? He can either fail to provide hospitality to the traveler who's arrived at his home in the middle of the night, and if he fails to provide that hospitality, then he's bringing shame on himself and on his whole family, maybe even on the community. I'm terribly sorry, but we have nothing for you to eat. Option two, or he can bother his neighbor in the middle of the night for some bread and that's what he decides to do, right? You can feel the awkwardness building in the story, the tension. Uh, so the guy goes to his neighbor's house and through the door you can imagine him whispering, hey, psst. friend, are you up? Hey, I got a problem here. I need three loaves of bread, please. Come on, my guests have arrived and they are hungry. But the friend, you know, Uh, isn't very friendly back to him. He says, don't bother me. Everyone's asleep on this big mat that the whole family sleeps in in this one room house, we presume. By the time I get up and I get your bread for you and then I pull the big lock that's keeping the door shut and then I open the door and all that creaking, the whole family's gonna be up and then we'll be up for who knows how long. Leave us alone, you know what they say, right? A lack of planning on your part does not necessitate an emergency on my part. That's basically the message. So now what does the guy do? The friend approach doesn't work. So what approach does he take instead to get this cranky neighbor of his out of bed and to get the bread that he needs? Here's what Jesus says. What he needs is shameless audacity. Isn't that cool? Shameless audacity. Papa, I need you to go to Migro and get those birthday buns, whatever they're called, and those special chocolates, and I need you to bring them to my school at snack time. Of course, Cliff, of course. Papa, make your name glorious, hallowed throughout all the world. Dad, may everything... You want to happen. Happen just the way that you desire it to. Abba, forgive me and make me, please make me a forgiving person. Father, look out for me when I'm scared and when evil is around and when I'm tempted. Papa, I need bread today. Maybe a little bit of chocolate too. Shameless audacity, shameless audacity. You see there are two attitudes towards prayer that are in the background that Jesus is addressing here, right? And these two attitudes were there in the first century and they're still with us today. Maybe they're clinging to some of our hearts as well. Attitude number one, God is so distant and so busy running the universe that it's arrogant and presumptuous of me to think that my needs and my desires are important enough to bother God with. Who am I to ask for what I need, much less what I want. Attitude number two, I am closer to God than most people. I obviously live a morally superior life. Just look at me. I'm educated, wealthy, people respect me. I show my religious superiority through my long and wordy and kind of showy prayers. When I talk, people listen and they act. So when I talk to God, I talk and talk and talk and he listens and he acts you see you see what jesus is saying in this story right he's saying that both of these attitudes are toxic to the disciple's soul and worse these attitudes about prayer they don't tell the truth about who god actually is jesus disciples learn from him a different prayer attitude. The rabbi wants to get it into our thick heads and into our hard hearts and into the memory of our forgetful muscles that God is different than we tend to think. Why would God hear your prayers? Why would God answer your prayers and give you what you really need? Not because of your many words, not because of your moral superiority, not because God is vaguely friendly or neighborly, maybe. Not because God is some under some kind of cultural obligation to help you out. Not because God can, unlike the idiot neighbor, not that God can tiptoe to the door and open it quietly and keep the family from waking up, you know, because he's so good as he hands you the three loaves of bread, kind of with an annoying look on his face. No. No. Why would God hear our prayers and answer them? What is Jesus trying to teach us if it's not this? Because he's a good, big-hearted, generous father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Do you hear that heartbeat of the father in the words of his son here? And what he loves more than anything else is the shameless audacity with which we ask, as beloved little children. Nothing delights the father's heart more than his children coming to him and saying exactly what's on their hearts, asking him for exactly what their hearts desire. The bolder, the better, the more shameless, the more sincere, the greater audacity, the greater the intimacy. See, when we pray like Jesus teaches us to pray, when we learn the rabbi's rhythm, feel a need, notice a desire, Bring it boldly and immediately to your father. What we're doing by doing that is we're actually saying something important about the father's own character. And in the process, we're praising him for it. Uh, Tim Keller has told the story before of, probably an apocryphal story, but of Alexander the Great, who apparently had a general. And this general of Alexander uh, had a daughter who was getting married And as the story goes, the general went to Alexander and said, sir, I'm going to throw a big wedding for my daughter, will you pay for it? And Alexander's answer was yes. And the treasurer kind of looked at them and said, what, (laughs) you're going to do what? Why are you going to pay for this guy's wedding? I mean, he's a general, but that's a lot of money he's just asked you for. And Alexander says, it brings me great honor to be asked. Why? Because by asking, this soldier of mine believes that I'm both generous and wealthy. Our shameless audacity honors God. Father, you are wealthy and generous. You are powerful and willing to provide. Sovereign, Over all the universe, but ready to hear me. Just as if I was a firstborn son. So here's what I desire. Here's what I need. Would you help? Would you answer me according to your kindness? Our shameless audacity to come to God in this rhythm, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, and ultimately moment by moment, with this steady rhythm of of need and request This audacious, shameless, bold, confident request of ours. This says something about us, sure. But it says even more, doesn't it, about the character of the God that we're asking. And God loves to hear it. He loves to hear it. Our Father in Heaven is not tucked into bed with his family behind a bolted door, trying to get a good night's sleep, wishing that we would quit asking for stuff. He's got wealth and power and generosity and kindness that Alexander the Great could never match. And he loves, loves, loves to give. Paul asks us, Romans eight thirty two, if God did not withhold the greatest gift of all from us, the gift of his own precious son, but rather gave Jesus up for us all, then what makes us think that he doesn't love us and love to give us all kinds of good things. Throughout this series, we, we hope that Jesus will train our desires, even as he trains us in prayer, so that we are more and more asking for things that he loves to give. He's going to call us, ultimately, to ask for nothing less than the kingdom of God to come. In all of its fullness. He's going to train us to be much more bold than to merely ask for some bread. But Jesus shows us in this story what kind of father he has and what kind of father we have. The kind of father who will give us his kingdom just like we were his firstborn sons. Because isn't that just the point? Because God has given us his firstborn son, the Lord Jesus, the greatest gift imaginable. All of God's self given to us in the Son. To come, to live, to die, to rise, to bring us to the throne with Him and to sit with Him. Ridiculous gift in the face of our sinfulness. So we need to have, therefore, the boldness of the Son Himself. And we need to say with Jesus, Father, give us the kingdom and along with it, give us every good and perfect gift. Are you in the rabbi's rhythm? Like, Is that the rhythm of your heart, to ask for everything that you want and need with shameless audacity? That's the mark of a daughter and son. And until it's the instinct of our hearts to ask with shameless audacity, as if we were the rightful heir, the firstborn son, Then our discipleship to Jesus still has a long way to go, doesn't it? But here's the good thing Jesus will stick with us until we know this fact by heart, and until it's in our muscle memory to act and to pray like we are the children of the God of the universe. What a privilege! My hope with this series is that we would grow up into the children of the God of the universe as Jesus teaches us how children of God pray. I hope you'll join me in the journey, and we'll all learn a lot, I think. Heavenly Father, we pray that this desire of our hearts that we ask you for today would be met in these coming weeks, that we would learn from our Savior how to be as bold as he is, how to take our place as rightful heirs of the kingdom and how to ask for all that we desire and increasingly to desire the things for which we ought to ask. We look forward to you doing this in our hearts and doing everything else that you intend for us in the weeks ahead. And thank you so much, especially for your patience to us as we learn. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response is, you'll note, it's eight stanzas, so hang in there, and um, this is the Lord's Prayer in song, so let me invite you to, how about this? We'll stand for all of it, you've been sitting long enough. Let's stand together and let's meditate on this hymn of response, Our Father Clothed with Majesty. Let's sing together.